Bigfoot, Skunk Ape, Grassman, Sasquatch. Just a few of the names given to the primate-like creature said to roam the woods and remote areas of North America. Tales of this elusive being go back for hundreds of years. Is it mere myth and legend? Or is there truly something more tangible to this phenomenon? Join us on this journey as we discuss the science behind the encounters, the research and the evidence, keeping you updated on the latest findings, ideas and hypothesis. Arrogance gets us nowhere and closing one's eyes doesn't make things disappear nor less real. Today's myth could be tomorrow's reality. It's time to make this subject matter less taboo. Welcome to Monster X Radio. Bigfoot without the BS. Hello and welcome to the show. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Haskell Hart on his new book, The Sasquatch Genome Project, A Failed DNA Study. Dr. Haskell Hart holds a PhD in chemistry from Harvard University and has a physical, inorganic, and analytical chemistry research background. He was associate professor of chemistry at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, after which he was a senior staff research chemist and research manager at Shell's Chemicals. Now, since Dr. Hart's retirement, he has been focusing on long-range detectors and application of DNA sequencing to species identification, especially relic hominoid candidates. Now, without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, Dr. Hart. Thank you for joining me on the show. It's been several years since I've had you on the show. And really excited to hear about, about your new book, uh, which is called The Sasquatch Genome Project, A Failed DNA Study. But before we do, before we get there, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Well, I'm a chemist, uh, physical and analytical and inorganic were my specialties. I taught for 10 and a half years at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. And then I worked for another 20 plus years for Shell uh, in research in Houston and uh, mostly as an analytical chemist there. So um, I have a background in analytical techniques and that sort of thing. I've been a lifelong natural history buff. Um, I used to press wildflowers in the Chicago phone book and all that sort of thing. I'm a lifelong bird watcher and I had heard about the Patterson-Gimlin film and um, was very interested in that way back in the 60s. Occasionally would read about something else on the Bigfoot Sasquatch scene and then um, in late 
2012, I heard that this paper was coming out by Mel Ketchum and other co-authors. So I was eagerly awaiting it. And when it came out in uh, February of 2013, I went ahead and paid my $30 to get access to it online because it wasn't um, free on, on their website at that time. And I went over it many times. Um, I did not understand it all at first. It's a little outside my field. However, uh, with my scientific uh, education and background, I was able to uh, eventually understand it all. And at first, I, you know, I was very optimistic that this would at, la at last prove that this creature existed. And I was all, you know, all hyped up to to finally see this come to be. But the more I got into it with my own independent study and searches of databases, uh, the less I saw that this was actually going to prove the existence of Sasquatch. I found um, many other uh, matches to databases, uh, mainly uh, bear and dog for two of the samples. And so I, uh, I then wrote a paper. It did not get published in this online journal, um, but it was a basis for me starting my blog online. And then eventually, after seven years of this, I thought, well, six years, going back to last year, about this time last year, I thought I should really put all this into one book so that people could see what the other's point of view was on this Ketchum uh, DNA study. So that's the basis for this book. It took me almost a year to write, and that's with a lot of time on my hands due to the coronavirus. Uh, it would not have been uh, available at this point if, if things have been normal. Um, so that's the nits and lice of it. I have, I did not know Melba Ketchum or any of her co-authors. I had no skin in this game. I really wasn't a Bigfoot, um, notoriety of any kind when I came into this. And so, you know, I had, I had, um, really uh, no access to grind. I, I, I tried to be objective, and I still am. And so this is um, my honest view of what that study did or did not accomplish. I mean, you weren't always interested in the Sasquatch phenomena. You mentioned uh, being interested in the Patterson-Gimlin film and stuff. So you were knowledgeable that there was a search or a study on the subject matter yeah, um, you know, I'd read something in the papers or on hear something on the TV from time to time, but you're very right. I, I was not one of the active investigators in this field um, until this paper came out. And so, uh, you know, it was kind of a new thing for me in a sense. I learned a lot from a lot of other people that have been involved for quite a bit of time. And so 
you know, it, I, I feel like I have a fresh look on it from a somewhat different point of view than lots of people who had, uh, you know, been out in the field for years and tried to find evidence and, you know, cast footprints and recorded sound and that sort of thing. I have been out in the field um, since I got involved with this study and, um, you know, I've heard some things and I actually had a sighting, which is described in chapter 19 of the book. Yes, that's, you know, there are people who've been at this much, much longer. Yes, uh, I'd like to talk about your possible sighting towards the end of the show here. But getting back to Melba Ketchum's study, right off the bat, what were your first impressions? Uh, You kind of discussed that a little bit uh, at the beginning of the show here. What were you expecting to see? Well, um, the paper is rather impressive to somebody who is looking at this sort of information for the first time. I'm not a geneticist. I've obviously doing my chemical education and so on. I've known about DNA for over 50 years and its function. And so I had a, a, a basic background, but um the paper required a lot of independent research on my part to understand the various forms of uh, evidence, the results that were presented, and how they were obtained, and then how the conclusions were drawn from those. So that kept me quite busy. And at first, I did some comparisons to the National Center for Biotechnology uh, database with with the program called BLAST. And, um, yeah, you know, up to about 95%, you could say it matched all kinds of things, um, human and other animals, and that seemed rather strange to me. Um, but then I, I eventually came to realize that that is because they used a human reference sequence um, to sequence the nuclear DNA of three samples. And so everything was biased toward genes, which are what they call conserved, that don't change too much between different species over, over time and evolution. And that makes it difficult because you're talking about a difference between 95% maybe and 99 plus. And some people would say that's trivial, but actually it isn't. Uh, if you do enough of these, you'll see a pattern that, you know, 99.5% there and 95% human uh, is enough of a difference. Um, but this is a bear sample in one case. So, you know, that's kind of how things went at first. And the more I learned, the more different my conclusions were. And uh, it's all explained in great detail. Right. Kind of hard to do here without figures and tables. It really, honestly, you have to purchase the book. You have to look at the book, read the book, no doubt about it, because uh, you put so much uh, detail into this book and and so much uh, work into this book, uh, which took over seven years. Honestly, uh, Dr. Hart, what compelled you to put pen to paper here, so to speak, and write this book and, and share it with the, the public? Well, 
you know, actually, this was not a full time job. I, I did spend about six years in doing this on and off. I do a lot of other things. I volunteer and I'm on boards and that sort of thing. Um, but, um, you know, it, it intrigued me uh, because I was able to learn about the databases that are available for this kind of uh, searching. And um, there are different ones, only one of which was really used by, by the Ketchum co-authors and so on. And they should have looked into some of the others. There's also external data that's not in the database, but it has been published that was very useful. Also confirmed um, what I found previously. DNA is a very interesting subject to begin with. It's in the news a lot. And it has a lot of applications, forensics and archaeology and paleontology and, you know, zoology and botany in general. So it encompasses um, or is applicable to a, a lot of different fields. And so that interests me. I'm, I'm interested in a lot of different areas of natural and physical science. So, you know, this, this kind of just... Um, gave me a, um, a way to uh, learn some new things. And, um, you know, I, I took my time about it because, you know, this takes a while to soak in. And then eventually I thought, well, gee, I've done all this work and I've published it here and there. There's a couple of papers outstand uh, that are uh, have been peer-reviewed and published. And then there's my blog, but I thought, I thought a single place in a book would be appropriate for those who are really interested in it. And I know it's a small audience uh, compared to what most people write a book for, but I thought it needed to get out there and uh, I could do it um, fairly inexpensively through, through Kindle. And so I got on it. Now, Dr. Hart, in your opinion, did Dr. Melba Ketchum get anything right? Uh, I mean, was there anything she did that was positive? I mean, I, I know the ins and outs of the study, uh, being involved with the Lint Project. Lint Project actually gave her some samples, as did Barcatino and many other individuals. Did she get everything wrong? Well, uh, I think I pointed out some of the positive effects of this study. One was to alert the Bigfoot community as to the potential of DNA for identifying a new primate um, as a scientific technique or methodology. Two, um, I found that in some of the mitochondrial DNA samples, the, the mitochondria are the mitochondrial DNA is inherited from the mother, and uh, it's a much smaller uh, molecule than the nuclear DNA, and it's used for species identification uh, a lot. Uh, I did find that there were some very unique mutations in about four of these samples that they had in common that are not found in humans very much and not ever altogether and that they are much more common in other primates, um, especially 
those that are more distant than the great apes. And so I think that there's some chance that actually she did have some Sasquatch DNA. Um, and um, interestingly, one of these mitochondrial samples um, was from the same uh, sample that the bear came from. So I think it was on the surface of, of the hair and the, the flesh. And how it got there, I'm not sure. But one could conceive that um, perhaps this bear was involved in uh, consuming a Sasquatch, a Sasquatch remains of some sort or something like that. I don't know. Uh, much more data needs to be uh, taken and obtained and analyzed. But um, there's a chance that a couple, a few of these samples might actually be Sasquatch. I don't think very many of them. If you took 111 samples of hair out in the woods and you wouldn't expect them all to be something different. Most of them you'd expect to be more common animals and I, I believe they are. So there's, there's some hope that there's some good data here, but it's hard to say it'll have to be confirmed by, by many more other uh, samples and, and DNA analyses. Mm -hmm. Mm. So could, could someone else outside of Melba Ketchum, uh, you know, someone else from academia, do you think if, if there was a certain sample that may have been a Sasquatch sample? Uh, do you think there's someone else that could have done a better job or a done a more diligent uh, job at uh, vetting the samples? Um, yes, I do believe that uh, in particular that bear sample, um, her pictures of the hair, micro, you know, microscopic views of that hair, uh, clearly show it to be a black bear. It's not anything like a human or any other primate. And, you know, they, they should have done a little screening before they spent all this money on sequencing, which is quite expensive compared to making a microscope slide. So, you know, I think, I think they sh should have been a little more uh, circumspect about which samples they they spent the money on. They uh, sample 140, which turned out to be a dog. Uh, you can't tell by looking at the blood what it what it could have been. So that 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 was okay, and uh, you know it just didn't turn out to be what they said it was. And the other nuclear sample, the sample 31, turned out to be very human. So we don't know. You know, if Sasquatch is very human or, or if it's contaminated because the mitochondrial analyses that are done by these contract labs that do your genealogy, they're all set up for human DNA. And that's all that you're going to see, whether it's the main sample or an impurity or a, a contamination. And I proved this by sending a dog, a horse, and a cat sample to one of these labs that she used, and none of those amplified or could be sequenced because uh, the techniques are specific to human only. So, 
So, you know, all these samples that came out human, they they might just have been contaminated. Mm-hmm. It's hard to prove. In the realm of, you know, this thinking, if Sasquatch is so closely uh, related to, just throwing this out there, to to human, how would one differentiate the difference there? I mean, obviously, we have no Sasquatch DNA uh, known. Uh, we have nothing to compare it to. How would one, at the end of the day, differentiate the uh, association with human or vice versa? And, in, in, mm-hmm. you know, you know, how, how would how would one do that as an academic well, scientist? Yeah, that's that's a very good question that comes up a lot. And in uh, one of my chapters, I talk about phyllo trees, which are uh, genetic um, trees of life that show relationships between different species or different samples uh, according to their DNA. And so what you would do is you would sequence your sample and then match that to other living species and eventually you'd figure out what it's closest to and you would use the software uh, that is available for free through the government and it produces this tree of life that shows you exactly where your unknown is in relationship to known species so let's say we're, we're dealing with something that is a primate and a great ape and close to human, you would do a comparison to chimpanzee, uh, orangutan, gorilla, and maybe a couple of monkeys and human. And you'd look at this tree and you could see um, if this species is sufficiently far, far removed from human to be considered a separate species or not. And um, that would take... um, a pretty good long sequence. Uh, I, I would think the minimum would be um, close to 400 bases in, in a mitochondrial sequence. I, obviously, the longer that sequence is, uh, the more reliable your phylo tree and your comparisons are going to be. And so um, that's how new species are compared all the time when they're discovered. New monkeys, I've read papers on this and you know, in addition to photographs, of course, that they have and behavior and all that other stuff, they measure, you know, if they have a skeleton, they'll measure all the bones and compare them to known species. But they also compare their DNA to closely related species. And, you know, this is done all the time. And you'll see phyllo trees that show the new species. And which would prove, you know, what it's related to, what genus it's in, what its closest relatives are. So the same approach would be used. It's not new. In your opinion, where did the Melba Ketchum study really, I mean, where was the turning point for you? Where did they really go wrong? Yeah. Go ahead. Well, um, I think in my conclusion, I pointed out several things that, that were were their downfall as far as I'm concerned into getting at the truth. One of them is using a human reference sequence to sequence an unknown species. And what this is, they they use what they call next generation techniques. You sequence a bunch of short segments 
of your unknown, and then you use a reference to stitch them together into a longer sequence. And this is only applicable when you know the species you're dealing with, or at least know what type of an animal it is. So you pick a reference that it's close to. If you don't know that in advance, keeping an open mind and stuff, and you you happen to pick a reference that's very different uh, from the animal that, that you actually have, you're going to get some sequencing, but it'll only be genes that are very unchanged between the species. And, you know, that is not a very good way to compare things. And so that was one mistake. Number two, they they use very loose ter- uh, terminology of significant uh, deviation or uh, uh, homology with another sequence without showing data and numbers. Um, statistically significant. You got to show some numbers to prove points like that. They didn't do that. They just used the words. Um, I had a couple other points that um, well, were less important. Yeah, Doctor Hart, do you have issue to to anybody that was involved with this study? I mean, with their backgrounds, their academic backgrounds. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, none of these co-authors had ever done anything like this before. Uh, that is identifying an unknown species. Uh, most of them, uh, ran contract labs where they were dealing with crime issues involving human DNA. Others had other specialties, uh, looking at hair samples or doing other sequencing. But their credentials, you know, and you can say, well, I'm not a geneticist either. Okay. Well, they, you know, they're on the paper and um, I don't think they have the background or the foresight to to understand the issues. Another thing I, I just thought of, one of the big mistakes was not searching enough different databases for matches. There are about a dozen of them just in the national Center for Biotechnology, and then you have uh, other data outside of that. And they only searched one database, and it had very little black bear data, for example. Uh, it had somewhat more panda data because, you know, it's, a, it's an endangered species, so people study it more. And it didn't have any polar bear data, which is the next closest relative to a black bear. And I didn't have that much brown bear data either. So um, they needed to have looked in other um, databases, and they did not do that. So um, they concluded, well, it doesn't match anything, so it must be unknown. Well, everything matches something. You know, in our Earth here, we've got all these different species, but they're related genetically. And, you know, you should get close matches to some similar species, no matter what, what you're looking at. I mean, that's, uh, that's sort of the dogma of modern, you know, of zoology that you don't have something way out in left field that doesn't match anything. That, that doesn't make sense. 
they all evolve from one another. So things have to be related to one another. And they, they didn't, they didn't understand that or they certainly didn't act like they did. Did this study seem rushed to you? Did it seem, if you were going to read a, an academic peer reviewed journal, uh, did this study seem rushed to you or did it seem like on point? Uh, exactly what you expect from academia? Well, um, they took five years in collecting and analyzing the samples and drawing their conclusions and writing the paper. So that's that's normal. I have no issue with that. Um, I think in the end, in writing it, I, I don't think the other authors reviewed it enough. I might have caught some of these things um, that I've been talking about. I think the rush might have been to get it published before somebody else came up with something and beat them to it. But, you know, I, I don't know exactly how long they spent writing the paper. I think the conclusions and so on just don't hold water. So you could say it was rushed. I'm not sure if that's the problem or just lack of uh, open-mindedness and uh, having a preconceived notion is what I call it. You've talked with uh, many individuals that are involved in this study, and including Melba Ketchum. And uh, from what I've read over the years and listened to over the years, you guys kind of had an open channel. And then eventually it was kind of shut up. Well, I'll tell you what. At first, um, I communicated quite a bit with um, Melba Ketchum about what I found uh, in my independent review of, of the work. And, um, you know, we were getting along pretty well. And then uh, I started to find some other things that were a little disconcerting. And um, that's when things went sour. And she eventually didn't want to communicate with me at all about the subject. And uh, by then I had um, pretty well drawn my conclusions about it. And she had her reasons for thinking I'm not qualified, this, that, and the other. I didn't have the right computer and software when I used the same system that she did. And you don't need a supercomputer to do this. Um, the National Center has the supercomputer. and All you do is submit the data and get the results. So, you know, it got, uh, it got to where uh, there was no more communication, and uh, that's just the way it ended. And so, I mean, all of the stuff we're talking about tonight is in your, your book, you know, the uh, Sasquatch Genome Project, a failed DNA study. It's all, all of the stuff we're talking about right now basically is in your book. And I'll be honest with you, and I, I've told you this, Dr. Hart, I've just started reading it. It's not a It's not a book you skim through. It's something that you have to actually have to sit down and read and read it carefully. There's so much extensive detail. Uh, I was kind of blown away just skimming through it at how much detail and how much work you put into this. Well, uh, quite honestly, I did a lot more work than a normal peer reviewer would in reviewing a paper because they've got other things to do and they get all these papers and you know, they'll do a few checks or use their own experience and background and 
their own published research um, as a basis for their criticism. Um, but I, I didn't have that, so I had to build it. And um, I found it very, very interesting and engaging. And so that's why I got so deep in it. And in this kind of thing, the devil's in the details. This is not a book for um, pop culture. It's not pop culture at all. Um, people like these books that are adventurous, exciting, and or romantic or whatever. And, you know, you don't have to... You don't have to get too deep into them mentally to understand what's going on. But this is um, this is science and it can be rather complicated. And I didn't want to downplay that uh, because I think one needs to understand it in detail or else you really can't make a judgment about, about it. And since I spent all this time doing this, I thought I should share it all just as it is. And of course, I'm, I'm very uh, willing and uh, I'd be very interested in um, chatting with people about it and help, helping them understand my point of view or any of the principles in there that, that may not be obvious at first reading. And so um, we'll see if it generates much discussion and um, any challenges? I'm I'm open for that. That's great. Uh, so yeah, it's yeah. not something that you just whiz your way through. You cannot skim it. Even an expert would have to look at it in detail to understand if it's telling the truth or not. Oh, I absolutely agree, and that's what's so stunning for me about your your writing your book. It's very detail-oriented and uh, given your academic background you you put so much time and effort into this book i can tell now uh kind of switching gears a little bit before the book came out you were attacked and now the book's out you're being attacked you've been verbally attacked what do you take away from that well i think people have an emotional attachment to her because for years they've been waiting for mainstream science to recognize the kinds of things, evidence that uh, various people had in observations and field studies. And then when she came out with this, you know, this is just what they wanted to hear. And then when it was rejected by peer reviewers and so on, they immediately concluded that it was unfairly treated. She was unfairly treated. And then, um, of course, when I turn it around and say, no, she wasn't. In fact, I have a whole chapter on her peer reviews and my assessment of those. Most of those conclusions I had come to independently. So, of course, I support what, what they found. And that kind of makes people a little bit upset if they've been one of her supporters. Now, most of these people, quite honestly, haven't taken the time and may not even be able to understand all the details. They're reacting a little bit emotionally and um, making some quick judgments without certainly not having read my book and so on. Um, so I don't take it too seriously. Another sideline is people don't like, some of them don't like the cover because um, I have a 
frame from the Patterson-Gimlin film and a red X over it, which, you know, I think people should have understood that means that that is not the species that was found. Right, right. I'm not saying, there's nothing in the book about the Patterson-Gimlin film. I don't think I even mention it, except as a reference where Bill Munns, I put his um, book in in one of my uh, bibliog in the bibliography because I think it's a very good study of the film and costumes. But other than that, there's nothing in the book about the Patterson Gimlin film. And in fact, I think it's authentic. I do think that there's a real creature there that it's not a costume. So uh, maybe I should have used a different figure of Bigfoot or drawn one or something. So that people wouldn't be again emotionally attached to the Patterson Gimlin film and putting an X over it, um, you know, they think is disrespectful and all this and that. Yeah, I mean, once again, it's you can't read a book by its cover. I think people. Well, that's need, right. Yeah, it's like you said, uh, Doctor Hart. You can't skim through this. Writing this book, you know, uh, seven-year process sort of thing. What was the most difficult part in writing this book for you? What was the most difficult thing you encountered in writing and sitting down and writing this book and putting your thoughts and opinions and your science and your endeavors into this book? What was the most difficult part? Well, uh, I think just in general, trying, even though it's very technical and scientific, trying to put it into terms that somebody with uh, you know, a fair education, not necessarily a scientific education, would be able to understand and organizing it all into chapters. And, you know, there's so much data and calculations and tables and, you know, putting it, putting it into a concise, uh, readable, uh, logically oriented, organized form was, was quite a challenge. And then next would be, uh, dealing with the formatting and putting it out in Kindle. Um, and you, uh, you having to deal with all their formatting issues and that sort of thing. Um, that, that might be number two. Uh, but all the information was, there, I had already done the research. Um, I had to prepare tables and figures that, you know, from Excel spreadsheets and things like that and dig up some figures um, from the Internet to explain some aspects of DNA and proteins and so on. So it, it involved quite a lot of different um, different challenges, but, um, you know, it went pretty well. Um, I wasn't ever hung up on anything. There was always a way to get around uh, what looked like a little hurdle. Patience. I'm not great on patience, but I, I had enough on this one. <laughs> you know, you've written this book. What would you like the average uh, reader, someone that's uh, interested in the subject matter or not interested in the subject matter, to uh, take away from your book, whether it's on Kindle or through Amazon or wherever this, we'll talk about that later, but what do you want somebody to take away from reading this book? Well, first of all, I think, you know, the readership is a, a limited group. They have to be 
fairly interested in the Bigfoot phenomenon. Um, I don't pretend to interest very many other people outside that group. Um, and so I would really hope that they would appreciate first um, the potential for DNA techniques and how they could be used to identify a new species if it's done correctly. And even secondarily, really, is to see that the conclusions of this well-advertised and publicized study of Melba Ketchum and, and nine other authors, I think, came to the wrong conclusion. And in spite of all the hoopla and public appearances and continuing radio appearances and all that, that uh, really it's uh, a failed study because the results and conclusions don't match up. And so that's that's pretty much it. Um, it's sort yeah. of a modest anticipation or, or expectation. I don't think it's going to, uh, I'm, I'm certain actually, it's not going to cause any great revolutions or any new paradigms or anything like that. I mean, this is not brand new science, really. It's um, DNA and sequencing and interpreting those results is decades old. Um, there are new experimental techniques, but the basic principles are, are pretty similar. It's um, It's a very limited thing, and I just thought it should be put out there for people to read we're interested, and um, hopefully it'll generate some discussion and debate and so on. Um, friendly, I hope, and you know maybe people will come away with overall better understandings, regardless of what side of the fence they were on originally. Right, and, and science should should be all about discussion, uh, about questions and answers and, and hypotheses. I mean, obviously, that's what science is all about, and that's what I I hope. Uh, down the road here, but uh, to get into something a little more personal with you, uh, Dr. Hart, you had a sighting, a possible sighting back in 2018 of June, and it was brief, but you saw something. It's fascinating. You know, obviously you you live in Texas, and now just in 2018, you had a possible sighting of a you know, something mysterious. Yes. Um, well, I've been a keen observer of nature almost all my life since I was a small child. I've had very good eyesight. Um, I used to have 2015 when I was younger without glasses. And uh, so when I see something that's this obvious, um, I'm, I'm not inclined to say, oh, well, you must have been mistaken. You must have... Um, you must not have been looking carefully enough because what I saw was in bright sunlight, which is unusual for a lot of these sightings that you read about. And um, yes, it was only a couple seconds. Um, I saw it out of the corner of my eye. Then I turned my head and I saw this, what asked to be a, a primate type creature because of its um it had a much greater height and width, so it wasn't like a bear, and it was much taller. Um, we put somebody out there and measured, you know, how much higher it was than the the six foot 
person I had out there and measured the distance at 30 yards. And I heard a uh, very sharp crack at the same time that I saw this uh, animal, uh, which it, to me was it had stepped on a branch or something. So, you know, it kind of confirmed that there was something going on. You know, unfortunately, it was brief. Unfortunately, I wasn't prepared to take a picture. Even if I had a camera in a couple seconds, I wouldn't have been able to focus it. Um, and I did not. I, I tried to see it afterward, walked up and down the trail, so no luck there. But um, it's in an area that there have been a lot of sightings. It's southeastern Oklahoma in the Wachita Mountains, the Wachita National Forest. So it's, um, you know, one of many sightings in that area. People have had rocks thrown at them. They've had um, calls. And I even heard a call on another occasion that would have to be some kind of a primate whoop. Uh, doesn't match any other animal that's out there. You know, I'm convinced that I saw one. And, um, and unfortunately, it's not scientific evidence. The search goes on, but I'd really like to get some, some, uh, some DNA samples out there. Um, I'm thinking maybe that this, uh, environmental DNA approach where you know, the uh, recent study of Loch Ness, they found dozens of species of all different vertebrates, uh, all classes of vertebrates and, and, and some non-vertebrates and everything in, in Loch Ness and nothing that looked like a monster, but there were a lot of eels around apparently and some of them grow pretty big. So who knows if you could get uh, stream water in that area, you might find a uh, DNA sequence that could be shown to be primate, but not human. And that would be a, a very good start. And then people would be more convinced that there's something in that area that's that's worth studying and trying to get a better sample of. I don't really want to kill one. I, I think they're too close to human. I'd like to get a sample some other way. <laughs> Or if one were run over by a car or something would be ideal. But, but, um, so I'll be back out there in the spring. I think when hopefully the virus goes away and we get some nice spring weather and maybe I'll see something else. We'll see. Fantastic and great comments. Uh, I really appreciate it, Dr. Hart. Uh, what is your hope for the future of Sasquatch research? I think you kind of already laid out it through the show. Well, of course, I think like almost everybody uh, who's been involved in this at all, some of them many, many more years than me, somewhere um, it would be nice to get a body or a body part or a skeleton or a part of a skeleton um, that could be measured and um, compared to other primates and also that could have, provide DNA uh, for a, a good sequence. Ideally, a nice, complete nuclear genome would would really put put the frosting on the cake. Um, short of that, I think maybe good DNA samples would would help. But I think people are they're always going to be skeptical unless you have a body part. I think, and um, so 
you know, I'm, I'm not about to shoot one, but I'm not going to criticize anybody else who does, except if it turns out to be almost human, then you've got a problem legally. Right. And uh, I, I would hope we could get some evidence some other way. Uh, actually, capturing one <laughs> kind of fantasy, but if you captured one and then let it go, you could get some information before you before you released it, and that would be ideal, I think. Uh, I don't know how to do that, though. And uh, so, you know, I'm I'm optimistic it'll happen eventually, uh, and I probably won't be involved with, with that, but um, uh, my best wishes to everybody else who's trying. I, I'd love to see somebody else get some body part and do, do real good science on it. Well, Dr. Hart, I have to commend you for putting yourself out there as an academic individual being interested in the subject matter. Well, thank you and for having me. And, you know, really at my stage of life, I'm 77. I'm not worried about a reputation or a career. I'm retired. I have been retired since 2002. And, uh, I'm doing this because I uh, I'm interested in it, and I I would like the truth to be known, and I'm I have no other expectations um, other than that, and um, I I will commend some other folks too, like Jeff Meldrum, and of course Spindernagel and Kranz were were pioneers, and uh, somebody like Todd Disitel is willing to look at things objectively, and you know he was on a TV show where they talked about how to collect evidence. And I think that's, that's important that people do this in a way that doesn't contaminate the samples and confuse the results. And he's willing to look at things and you might have to pay, pay him to do it, but he's got an open mind. And I I respect that because he's got a active career. Mine is, mine is long expired, but as far as being an active practicing scientist and, you know, he's still writing papers about monkeys and stuff like that. So there's some others. And I just, I think, you know, people produce some good samples. I think maybe some good results will come and there'll be more interest. Dr. Hart, uh, two, two last questions. Do you think science should look at this, uh, look at it a little more seriously well, uh, it's okay to be skeptical, and in fact, um, you know, most scientists are about new things, and they should be. It should take extraordinary evidence to um, to make extraordinary claims and back them up. I think there's been a lot of other animals that were not known fully or thought to be mythology that were proven out to be true, and this this is just another one of those. and. People will argue about this, but you know, the giant squid was, was not fully defined till one washed up on shore one time and gorillas weren't known till definitely to exist and until close to 1900, I believe. And, um, there's the, uh, the king, uh, let's see, the king cheetah, is it that has these stripes instead of spots? Yeah. You know, that's a cryptid. And finally, a couple of them were born in a zoo to what would look like normal parents. And so it's a recessive gene of a sort, and then they got all the information they needed. But, you know, only four or five had ever been 
seen reliably. So I think this falls into that category, and uh, it's been a little tougher to get. It's surprising that somebody hasn't come up with more physical evidence over all these years, and um, that leads some people to think that it's actually uh, a supernatural being or something that just can't be captured by humans or whatever, and uh, they're entitled to that view. I don't believe that myself, but... Where can one find uh, your book? Where can they purchase your book? Well, um, the book is available on Amazon, both as paper book, paperback and as a Kindle book. So as all you got to do is search something like either my name or Sasquatch or Sasquatch Genome Project, and it'll come right up. That's the only place, really. I, it's not out in bookstores. I don't think that would be a an economically viable proposition. Um, the thing is with uh, Kindle, they only print the book when somebody orders it. So there's no warehousing. There's no printing of books that may never be sold. Um, they've got a system where they can whip off one of those if they need to uh, for somebody. And, and so I didn't pay anything to publish this book, really. I did pay for a copyright, but, you know, there's no upfront costs of, of printing these things that you don't even know for sure you're going to sell. So I think that was an eye opener to me. And I, I did uh, consult with Ken Gerhardt on this matter since he's published a number of books this way. And he gave me some tips and led me to the right uh, platform and so on. So that that was an exercise in itself. This this is the only book I've ever published, other than my PhD thesis, I guess. But um, and that didn't go anywhere except the chemistry library at Harvard. But <laughs> so this was a new uh, venture, and it was it was fun. It was there were frustrating moments, but I felt to see. Uh, you know, a feeling of accomplishment when I had finished. Thank you, Dr. Hart, for uh, joining me on the show. And I hope people uh, actually buy the book. Thank you, Shane. It was a pleasure uh, talking with you. And there's no rush here. If it takes you uh, as long to read that book as it took me to write it, so what? As long as you understand it at the end, you know. Now, again, if you'd like to purchase Dr. Hart's book, the Sasquatch Genome Project, a failed DNA study. You can get it on Amazon, either in Kindle format or in paperback. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, be safe and take care, everyone.
thank you for joining Monster X Radio. 